Good morning, Center Church. I'm very, very excited that you're here. Uh, it's good. Thank you, team, for leading us well. And uh, one thing, we're going to jump into the message real quick, but one thing I want to say is we had some incredible people serving this weekend between Friday night and Saturday morning at Byron Days, and I'm really, really proud. Yeah, we can give them a hand. Some of you are sunburnt, so I know you were there. Uh, it was a really cool weekend. I mean, multiple stories of people who didn't just feel blessed by what we were doing between the kids zone and clean up with the parade, a bunch of other stuff, but but also just ask questions about the church, ask questions about faith and like where'd you get those cool t-shirts, all that kind of stuff. Like it was really, really worth the investment. Like it was way beyond, I mean, there's nothing wrong with picking up nasty Tootsie Rolls on a Saturday morning. I mean, don't get me wrong, but there's something power, way more powerful uh, about actually people seeing God's love through us. And so I'm really, really proud of our church, of so many of you who stepped up and served. And as you give too, like Nick said, like we're supporting ministry like that. It's not just uh, kind of what we're doing here on Sunday. So I'm really thankful for that. In the spirit of that, we have a ton of free t-shirts on that back table. Please grab it on your way out. But I have a nice, crisp, out-of-the-bag Byron Day shirt. Does anybody need this? You just need this extra Byron Day shirt. You're, you're ready for it. Okay, she's ready. I'm, I love that. It's the time. Uh, in the spirit of enthusiasm, what I wanted to do uh, was introduce us just to a little, I don't know, Sunday morning summer psychology. Anybody into psychology? Like, you just love the way the brain works? Okay, not me. Um, but I, I'm just glad my brain does work. But I'm not really always sure, like, how it works. But my wife was a counseling major in college, and so I got introduced to some of these kind of psychological tools that they use in counseling offices. And in 1955, two guys, Joseph and Harrington, developed this tool called the Johari Window. They may ask where they get such a brilliant name for this, this tool. It's Joseph and Harrington combined, okay? So it's, they were smart, but it was not that creative of a name. But Johari stands for Joseph and Harrington, the guys that created this tool. In this tool, essentially they were working with patients and clients trying to help develop self-awareness. Now, if you've ever worked with somebody or you're married to somebody or you have a friend who is not self-aware, I mean, it's obvious. It's like glaringly obvious, like, hey, you've got this issue and you're not aware of it, or you have that thing in your teeth, you're not aware of it. Like, there's a lot of places, kind of a need for self-awareness is very, very evident. And so they developed this tool to help lead their patients through uh, this process of, of, of growing in self-awareness. So I want to walk you through this grid real quick, and then I'll tell you why you should care about this. The Johari window essentially starts with the premise that there are areas of life that are known to us and known to other people, and that's a good thing, right? That, that's a healthy place to be, and they call this the open arena, or arena for short, a place where you are known by other people and you know it about yourself. So for instance, an open arena of my life, I have no hair follicles on my head. Okay, like you're all aware of that, and I'm aware of that. Every time I look in the mirror, I'm like, okay, I see that. You're all, you're all aware of that as well. But if you go to the next section over, there's areas in my life that I don't know about that you know about. And again, this is a classic example of like being in the meeting and someone's got like food in their teeth, and you all know it, uh, but they don't know it yet. Or you're on a date, and they, they spilled something on their shirt, but they think they look great still, and you're like, hey, I I kind of want to point this out, but I'm not sure if I can. You know it, but they don't know it. If you've ever done driver's training, which I'm assuming most of us have, 
you remember just the, the adamant re, like reinforcement of check your blind spots, check your blind spots. If you've gotten in a car accident like I have before, it's because you probably weren't checking who was next to you. You had a blind spot. And all of us have those in our life. All of us have those behaviorally or mentally or relationally even. And then if you go into the next box, areas that you don't know about and others don't know about you, this is called the unknown box. Essentially, it's undiscovered territory of your life. And like it or not, you may not think you have these areas, but all of us do. We have areas of life that we are not aware of. Maybe they're patterns or behaviors or habits. And other people may not even be cognizant of these too. Like they're just totally unknown. And then there's another category they describe as hidden. Some, would dis- uh, some psychologists refer to this now as the facade. And this is areas that you know and others do not know. And all of us have those areas too. There's secret things in our life that we know about that other people do not know about. And I've led like our staff team through this. I've led leadership groups through this tool. And I've used it in my own personal life just as a way to reflect on my own self-awareness. But it got me thinking, what about God? Are there ways that we can move from, because most of us, frankly, live in blind spots with God or hidden spots with God, but what if there was a practice to move us into the open arena when it comes to our relationship with God? Like, what if there was something that you and I could do for a little slice of our week, but on a repeated basis, and it would actually free us up to be open and honest, not just with God, but also with other people that we trust and other people that we love? And I started exploring that question, and I found that there is a practice There is a habit, a discipline you and I can adopt that doesn't take that long that actually can lead us into that open life. And it's the discipline of confession. Confession. Now, it's July 31st. You're like, man, I'm thinking about the boat, thinking about barbecue later. Why do you got to preach on confession, man? That seems so dry and boring and unpracticed by many of us. Why would we talk about this? And I want to take you... Uh, the answer to that is I want to take you to 1 John chapter 1. If you have a Bible or a device, this is the time the reference will be on the screen. I want to take you into this passage because I think it perfectly illustrates the beauty and the value of this forgotten discipline. Here we go, verse, uh, starting in verse 5. This is chapter 1 of the small little letter, 1 John. Here's what he says. This is a message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now that's important, right? We're not under the illusion that God has somehow sinful world like we are, has darkness in him. John is saying, no, he does not. There's no darkness in him. If we claim to have fellowship, Greek word here being koinonia, it's like a deep friendship. It's not just like an acquaintance. It's like a real relationship, living, breathing, just like you have with a close friend. If we, have, if we claim to have fellowship that way with Jesus, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship, koinonia, deep, real relationship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies or cleanses or heals us from all sin. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I haven't been on this earth super long, but one thing I have noticed about myself, and you've noticed it too, is that we are incredibly gifted at self-deception. We are incredibly good at convincing ourselves we are better, 
more healthy, more strong, more healed than we actually may be. And John is saying, don't make that mistake. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, rather, he is faithful and just. If we confess, he's talking about this discipline, he's faithful and just and will forgive us, heal us, our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. See, John is is trying to tie the practice of confession, naming sin, verbalizing the darkness in our own life, getting it out to someone we trust and to our loving Heavenly Father. He's trying to draw the connection between that practice and healing that we all crave, like that inner spiritual healing that we desire. You see, I'd put it this way, confession really is so close to healing that the average person can't tell the difference. Like when you get something out someone to someone you trust, to a God who loves you, that's been inside of you, just kind of eroding like a cancer, your, in, your interior world, it's freeing, it's redeeming, it's healing. And confession, this discipline, this lost art, it's so close to healing, so close to the actual experience of salvation that the average person can't even tell the difference. It's like so similar to that. Another way to describe this is confession, if you think about it this way, if sin is a cancer, it's a disease that's infected every single one of us, which is how scriptures talked about it. Like we are not perfect moral beings. We have darkness in us. That's what First John just talked about. But, but if sin is like a cancer, a disease that's kind of working its way through our body, slowly breaking us down, the only way to truly get healed is, number one, to be honest and deal in reality that we have that. And number two, we need surgery. Like, you can't just get rid of it because you have willpower or because you just don't want to have it, you know? Uh, another way to put it is confession is kind of like a divine incision, like if sin is a cancer, God is a divine surgeon who wants to, to rule and root all of that stuff out so that you can be truly pure and truly free. Now here's what I find really, really fascinating. So this, uh, my father-in-law bought us this uh, kind of small set of Cutco knives last year. And I was like, I have one chef's knife. Why do I need all these little like handy knives? Like I didn't think, I was naive and you can tell I don't cook a lot, obviously, but these are great knives. Like, they're super useful to have. They're really sharp. There's a bunch of different kind of uses for certain, uh, the knives that we got. Now, this one basically is a glorified grape cutter for my daughter, Lennon. That's what this is. It's, there's not much more that happens with this. It's, it's a paring knife, but basically it's John cutting grapes and giving them to his daughter. That's what this actually functions as. But in my hands, like, if you have kind of the cancer of sin in your life or you had, like, some serious disease going on. You knew you needed surgery. In my hands, this is like a weapon. It's not, it's going to be painful, but it's not like the good kind of pain. It's like, John, what are you doing? Get away from the knife. Like even right now, you're like, could you put that knife down or angle it a different way? But in the hands of a gifted surgeon, in the hands of someone who's dealt with getting cancer out of someone's body, who's trusted, who's reputable, this knife is actually a gift. This knife actually brings you to a place of healing. It actually brings you to a place of physical freedom. And to me, when I think about the practice of confession, this is exactly what we're talking about. See, God is not like interested in just making like a moral perfection case study out of you. He actually wants fellowship, friendship with you. 
That's why the first five verses of this letter, First John literally talks about the, the fact that, they, that God desires fellowship. He, he wants it to be real to us in the verses that we read as well. And think about it this way too, like as a, I'm 31, and as a 31-year-old, my relationship with my parents has changed. Like this is, this is my uh, mom and dad, Mark and Sherry Gorvette. They've been married for a long time. They've been super faithful to each other. They've been supportive of me. And I, I get not everyone has great parents, but, but I have great parents. And one of the things that I've noticed about it, as I get older, now we have our own family and we've moved out and we've got kids, like, like the relationship has changed. They used to be kind of like a rule giver. That was like the primary way I related to my parents. But now, as time has gone on and as distance has created some separation physically, like they've become friends. So if you have a crazy teenager right now, there's hope for you, okay? <laughs> like, you're not alone. There's a way. There's hope at the end of, the, at the end of that 18-year-old stretch, right? So, but it's really interesting. Like, what I want more for my parents is not just, like, a, a quick answer or, like, another rule. I want relationship. I want fellowship with them. I want friendship with them. And, and literally, God is saying, that's how I want to relate to you. Is not a divine rule giver or cosmic judge or, like, a, a prayer vending machine. I want to have like a, an intimate, personal, walking every single day relationship with you, just like a good dad or a good mom has with their children. This is his desire. And he's saying anything that keeps, from, keeps you from that, I want to, through confession, help root that out. I want to free you of the grip of things that, that want to keep you from that relationship. Literally, John is saying God is righteous. He's faithful. He's pure. He's holy. So much so he wants to heal you of all unrighteousness in your life. He wants to redeem and restore. Like sin is not native to you. You You're not supposed to live with it, just like cancer is not native to you. And it's through the process of confession we get honest and we get free. Confession, friends, closes the gap between the life that we're living and the life God actually has for us. And to me, that's an incredible gift. To you, that can be an incredible gift. Here's what I've noticed, though. I'm human, you're human, I've got stressors in my life, I've got needs, I've got emails to answer, I've got stuff to do, and what happens in my life, especially when it comes to my spiritual journey, is I tend to compare my sins to the other people around me. Anyone do this? You're like, well, I cheated on a test, but at least I didn't cheat on my boyfriend, right? Or or I, I, I kind of fudged some numbers here in my business, but at least my personal taxes are just per- like perfect, you know? Like, Or, or, or I... I didn't swear at anyone verbally, but in my head, I wanted to run them over with my truck. You know, like, at least I didn't do those kind of things. You know what I'm saying? Like, we compare our sins horizontally. That's our comparison. We're like, as long as I don't sin as bad as that guy or that girl, or as long as I don't post that online, at least I'm not those people. But confession doesn't play that game. Confession is brutally honest. Confession does a vertical comparison to God with our sin. It says if God is, it has no darkness at all, if in him is true, lasting light and true freedom, then anything in my life that doesn't line up to that is sin, is darkness. And, and confession is a way to get that stuff out, to name it, to verbalize it, to share it with someone, and to receive the beauty of forgiveness and assurance that God is healing and is restoring and wants to make you new. Like, this is what confession is. The other beautiful thing that John alludes to in this passage is that confession 
is kind of a foretaste of heaven. Because in confession, we're bringing the things that are broken and chaotic and messed up about us. We're being honest about who we really are. And it's in the reception of those words that a close friend, a brother, pastor, a leader can offer the words back of forgiveness and assurance. Because one day, the sin and darkness we experience in our own world and in the world around us will be eradicated forever. And that, friends, is true gospel hope. That's why I think confession is just so close to healing. The average person can't tell the difference. Like they feel the same in so many ways because God has wired us for for practices like this. But I want to ask a maybe bigger question. So maybe up until this point, like you're here, you're watching online, and you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, like confession is a good thing. I'm glad that people around me confess I'm glad that hyper-spiritual people have figured this out. I'm glad that pastors do this. But I want to ask kind of the bigger question is, why don't all of us do this? Like, why don't we confess? Why do we know that we sometimes even voluntarily sin, do things against God's will, against God's best for us, and we just don't let it out? We just keep it inside. We keep it bottled up. We keep it secret. And I I don't have, like, God's direct answer to that, but as you search the Scriptures, as you reflect, and as I've talked with people and even my own journey, here's my best stab at this, no pun intended. We don't believe, secretly, we don't believe that God is actually in touch with our reality. We think God is, like, abstract and doesn't know what it's like to be human. He doesn't know what it's like to have the temptation when I open my phone. He doesn't understand the draw towards that person or the needs I have that I need to be met in, in alcohol or in weed or whatever the addiction is. Like, he, he doesn't understand. Like, he doesn't really get what it's like to be me. He's somehow, like, removed from our real life. Like, when we step in a room like this or you're watching the service, it's like, well, God just kind of deals in this like ethereal spiritual space, but when I step out there, he's, he's just not in touch. He doesn't get it. But, but true healing only deals in reality. And, and you can read all over the gospel story, we have a God who stepped down, laid down divine privilege to actually identify as a human being with you, to be like you. And it says in Scripture over and over again, he was tempted in every single way you and I are, yet was without sin, yet was without stepping and succumbing to the darkness. And so confession just gets us in touch with the fact that Jesus actually does know what it's like to be you. He does know what it's like to have desires. He knows what it's like to struggle to be significant or valued. He knows what it's like uh, to have those draws that we all have, and yet Jesus wants to come along in every single one of our lives as this divine surgeon to say, I can heal that. I can, I can get you free from that. But you only, your only requirement on your part is to confess, is to get it out into the light, is to bring it before somebody, is to verbalize and name it no matter how much courage and difficulty that may bring. Like, I love the way Frederick Buchner points this out. He says, to confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything God doesn't already know. Like, go back to that Jahari window, right? Like, 
It's known by us and it's known by God, whether you like it or not. And confession is a way to voluntarily go there. But involuntarily, that fact is just true. It's pure reality. Until you confess sin, until you confess them, though, they are the abyss between you. Just like in a, in a marriage, just like in a friendship, when there's stuff that you know is wedged in between until you're willing to remove it, there is this chasm, a gap between you. But when you confess them, he says, they become the bridge. And friends, I'm, I'm not preaching this out of like perfection. I'm preaching this out of this has actually been my experience. Like there's been relationships when I brought stuff into them or I confess that I, that I sinned or thought something or did something like intent. On, on hurting that other person, it actually ends up becoming a bridge between us. It develops trust. It develops a better foundation than the facade that we often live from. And so the second question you may be asking is not just like, why don't we confess? But, okay, like confession to God, that sounds safe, right? He loves me. He's for me. You just said Jesus came down. He knows what it's like to be me. But confession goes one step farther. Confession is not just in your head or in your devotional time or in your quiet time on the way to work. Confession is also communal. It's one to another. Literally, the book of James says, confess your sins to one another so that you can be healed. It's not like just a spiritual abstract thing we do kind of in our prayer time. It actually is something we do with one another. But very few of us have ever actually experienced that, know what that would even be like. And so for the next five, no, I'm just kidding. We're not doing that here. I mean, maybe, but we're probably not going to do that here. But I was in a setting uh, much like you were. I was in a worship service back in March. I was sitting there, and I kind of got into the session late. This was like late at night. It was at this men's retreat thing. I'm, I'm kind of in there. I got in late. So I picked the back row. It's like one of the only spots left. And I'm sitting there. We go through worship. There's a great kind of sermon delivered, all this stuff. And then, kind of towards the tail end of the service, literally the, the pastor gets up and says, okay, so the way we're going to close before we break for the night is I, we're going to just have some worship music going. We're going to have some space. And uh, I want you to turn to the person next to you and confess something. Anyone else think that's weird? Am I the only one? You're all looking like that's totally normal. That's, that is not normal. Like, none of you do that. None, I don't do that. Especially with someone I really don't know. And so it struck me, I was like, uh, I got to think of something like safe. Like, I don't know, like I sped on the way here. Like I, I was trying to think through like, or maybe I really need to go to the bathroom right now. <laughs> I, I need to figure out, do I have to pee or not? Like, I got to go. I got to get out of this room because I just didn't, I was so uncomfortable, did not want to do it. And I could tell the guy next to me who really doesn't know me. I think I met him like recently. I know his first name. That's about all I know about him. I know that he was feeling awkward too. He was like, oh shoot, this guy's like a pastor. I have seen him. Like, this is gonna be really, really weird. And so the pastor up front is like, all right, here we go. Three, two, one. I want you to turn to somebody and confess some stuff. And so I wish that I had said I'd gone first and like revealed the deepest, darkest secret, but I just kind of sat there. I was like, uh, I'm not sure what to share with this guy. I don't really know him. Like, how far do you go? Can I trust him? And he turns to me. And with tears in his eyes, just spills his guts about something that was incredibly honest, incredibly raw, incredibly vulnerable, way farther than I was planning to go. And just shares, like, I, I want to get free from this stuff. I want healing. I want to 
let God in. I want to be forgiven for this stuff. Like, I don't want to live with some of this stuff anymore. I've got kids. I've got a wife. Like, I want to move on from some of these. And it really struck me because what, what hit me about the moment was not just the fact that he went first. That was incredible. But it was the power of confessing to someone else that was starting to set this guy free. To me, that's what really, that's just what hit. It was like this light bulb moment. It was like, oh my gosh, why don't we do this? Like, why isn't this part of my life in this kind of way? Why isn't it part of our church's life in this kind of way? Why, why, why do we often run from our spouse or run from our friends or run from our small group when, when they're the people who can actually lead us to the, the truest, realest healing? Like confession is so close to healing that the average person can't tell the difference. And so that just struck me. It hit me. And there was this beautiful moment where, like, we had to we had to be honest with one another. Like, confession is our part. But when you're confessing to someone else, like, assurance is the word we use. Assurance is their part, especially in the body of Christ. It's a, the ability to say, you are forgiven. You are healed. You are restored. You are not the old person. You are being made new by the Spirit of God. And so we got to do that for one another in that moment. And that to me was incredibly beautiful. It's a foretaste of the kingdom of God. It's a foretaste of the gospel. It's a foretaste of all the things that so many of us crave. So many of us desire. And so for me, I've got literally two people in my life every single week who can ask me any question about anything and I have to answer honestly. It's like a a pact we've made with one another. Why? Because there's things I'll just deceive myself about. There's things I'll rationalize. There's behaviors. I'll just kind of get my logic in the mix and, and, and kind of stuff it away. There's thoughts I'll have. I just think that's not a big deal. Things I want to say, things I want to do that I know are not God honoring. I just want to do them anyway. And no one will find out it's not hurting anybody. And there's guys like Jason and Evan every week who just call me on that. Who just say, we're not playing that game. There's so much at stake. That's just not worth it. And so for you, I want to challenge you that same way. I want to challenge us as a community the same way to not live in those secret areas or those blind spot areas, but to get brutally honest with someone you trust and love. If you don't have anybody, I will be that for you, but find somebody who, name a who, who can you confess to? Because it's just not enough to sit there and, and to play mind games with God. But it's actually an opportunity, confession, this beautiful practice where we can bring someone else in and say, you know, I should have done this a long time ago, but at the right, the right time to do it is now. It's not to wait. Like when's the, when's the next right time to do it? Right now. <laughs> like what if I've waited for 10 years? When's the best time to start something like this today? Like, like to me, this is such a powerful evidence of the gospel at someone's, in someone's life that we can be honest and vulnerable in front of other people and at the same time find God's healing and restoring hand. He's the divine surgeon. None of us are. So this is the opportunity before you. Will you take it? Will you leave from here and think through, or maybe you have someone, you just know, like, I need to get someone who I can confess to on a regular basis. I'm not talking once a year, you stack it up kind of Catholic style. I'm talking like, 
real deal walk with Jesus style every single week, every single day if need be. And just to have those people, because not just anyone will do this. If, if this was easy, everybody would do this. Not anybody will do this, but you know what everyone wants is healing, freedom, a relationship with Jesus that does not play games. And that to me is on the other side of this discipline. It's on the other side of this practice. I'm telling you as a personal testimony, do that. And so I want to take some time to pray for us and then we're going to have some time to respond through communion together. And uh, I can't think of a better way to close out our time than, than this meal because what it does is it gets us in touch with the actual sacrifice, the broken body, the blood of Jesus, which is shed for you, not just so that you could have like a spiritual experience once one hour every week, but so that your life could be deeply changed, transformed, re your brain rewired. So I'd love to pray for us and then we're going to sing and, and take that together. So Father, we... We come before you just literally as we are. No pretending, no facade, no trying to play church or pretend like we're more spiritual than, than we are. We just bring to you who we are, the real version of us, or some of us that no one else even knows. We bring that before you, Lord, and we are asking that not only would you give us somebody, not only would you give us a trusted person who this week we could begin this beautiful rhythm of confession and forgiveness and assurance to, but you would also help us to be reminded that you do not look down on our sin, on our chaos, on our own version of darkness as a disappointed dad. That's not who you are. You look upon us like a father who sees infinite potential infinite value, infinite worth, who's, who's knitted us together in our mother's womb and wants the very best for us and is willing to go to extreme lengths to cut out, to remove, to do surgery on anything that would keep us from that. And so God, we trust you with our lives. We trust you with ourselves, with our families, marriages, singleness. And we're asking that you'd make us free people, healed people, restored people through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand, church. We're going to worship together uh, through this song. And at any point, take some time to examine, take some time to reflect. But we're going to celebrate communion together uh, whenever you're ready. So let's do that.